welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides to this journey, my co-host Phil Clyde, author of the novel Missionaries, our crack producers Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara of Racket Media, me, Jake Siegel, and Akarov Tall Hats. May you continue to be a person. It's about time. <laughs> she unlatched the door and pulled it open. I walked in on her and took the doorknob out of her hand and swung the door shut behind me. In case the screaming expression on her face changed into sudden noise, it didn't. The fixed, lopsided rigor of her face didn't change. Her right fist rose of its own accord to the level of her eyes. She looked at me around it. Take it easy, Mrs. Hendricks. I won't hurt you. I hear you telling me. But she relaxed enough to unlench her fist, unclench her fist, and use it to smooth her red hair. Her lopsided mouth straightened itself. Who are you? A friend of Harry's. I said I'd look him up here. And with that, this week's episode is dedicated to the simple art of murder. Uh, both the, the practice and the philosophy and the essay uh, from 1955 by Raymond Chandler, the American detective writer, not a mystery writer, um, but a detective writer, and the novel Black Money by Chandler's uh, not quite disciple or acolyte, perhaps contemporary, certainly rival, probably all of the above, the great Ross MacDonald. So the manifesto and the work of art here, I think, fit together rather obviously. But what do you think, Phil? Yeah, I mean, this is great. I'm, I've been looking forward to this. I just started reading Ross MacDonald this year. Uh, I read three of his novels. Um, the first Lou Archer novel, which felt very kind of derivative of Chandler in some ways, and then um, black money feels like a, a, a different beast in a lot of interesting ways. And I, I think we can, we can talk about that. Uh, and I read the chill as well, uh, which is also great. So I'm looking forward to this and I've, you know, hard not to love Chandler. Uh, even if, well, I'll, I'll be very curious to see what you think of the, the simple art of murder, but, um, we'll start us off. So what, you know, what do you have to say about the simple art of murder? I mean, it's it's an essay written in 1955 for the Atlantic originally, and it's Chandler's um, literary opus. You, you as gotta it were. you gotta look this up, guy, because like people should read this because it's fun, you know. Um, even if you <laughs> even if you don't agree with where he ends up uh, in his argument, like I mean, Chandler is just such a sentence by sentence delight to read um and yeah you know uh I, this is just the, the opening paragraph fiction in any form has always intended to be realistic 
old-fashioned novels which now seem stilted and artificial to the point of burlesque did not appear that way to the people who first read them. Writers like Fielding and Smollett could seem realistic in the modern sense because they dealt largely with uninhibited characters, many of whom were about two jumps ahead of the police. But Jane Austen's chronicles of highly inhibited people against a background of rural gentility seem real enough psychologically. There is plenty of that kind of social and emotional hypocrisy around today. Add to it a liberal dose of intellectual pretentiousness, and you get the tone of the book page in your daily paper and the earnest and fatuous atmosphere breathed by discussion groups and little clubs. These are the people who make bestsellers, which are promotional jobs based on a sort of indirect snob appeal, carefully escorted by the trained seals of the critical fraternity and lovingly tended and watered by certain much too powerful pressure groups whose business is selling books. Although they would like you to think they are fostering culture, just get a little behind in your payments and you will find out how idealistic they are. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is tonally, at least, um, tells you everything you need to know. about. It's delightful, not unconnected to a real critique, but a little bit um, self-flattering and myopic, but... Yeah. Uh, it's self-flattering, myopic, but it's also wounded, um, yeah. you know, a bit, a bit insecure with a big chip on its shoulder. Huge. Both, both disdainful of the lesser practitioners of mystery writing, the English in particular, <laughs> while at the same time insecure in the presence of real literary writers. Right. Um, it's got some of all of that, but it's also, you know, like fun and mean and um, and funny and mean. Yeah. And, and, and he, he does have, in addition to the point about realism, he has a, you know, he has a point. He has an idea yeah. Yeah. about what makes the novel work. It's not just a, it's not just a kind of critical evaluation well, of his it, peers. It's, it's, it's not just that he's got an idea. He's got an idea. As, as far as manifestos go, this is a manifesto that is conquered, right? Um, and I think we'll, we'll get towards the character that he sketches out at the end, who I think is sort of incredibly dominant in, in American popular culture. But, you know, he starts out talking about, I mean, he's, he's going to talk about the detective story, right? Um, and he, he's not going to, defend it. He says, it's not any part of my thesis to maintain that the detective story is a vital and significant form of art. There are no vital and significant forms of art. There is only art and precious little of that. Um, But then he goes and talks about the sort of um, the the detective novel um, and the, the as is currently popular and uh, he relates it to this sort of English style where a lot of it is about the mechanics of the murder, right? There's a kind of Rube Goldberg, Rube Goldberg plot, a kind of sort of clack, clockwork construction of a particular... Right, so there's a lineage here yeah. that's important insofar as the American detective novel grows out of the English mystery stories and, you know, the classic example of the type uh, for modern readers would be Agatha Christie, though she actually comes a little later. But the sort of English mystery, uh, which combines the 
Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, uh, logical deduction, scientific method mixed with, you know, strange forms of divination and uh, this sort of very peculiar to its time blend of uh, empiricism and rationalism with mysticism. And, and then the very kind of uh, cutesy is not fair. Cutesy is the wrong way to put it, but uh, the mystery procedural that's very on the button and that is uh, there's almost a kind of, you know, mellifluous quality to it. Uh, now that's, I, I'm obviously betraying my own biases here, which are, are more in the Chandler camp, but, but that's something that was looming over yeah. the American writers who followed, starting with Poe and the ratiocination stories, and then the, the detective writers of the 20th century. So. Have, you, have you ever read um, James Thurber's The Macbeth Murder Mystery? No. <laughs> it's, it's a... Um... It's just a, it's it's a delightful little story about like um, you know the main character is I think he's like at a hotel uh, with this woman who picks up Macbeth but she's like an, she's a an American reader of murder mysteries and uh, and like as she's reading Macbeth she's talking to him about it um, uh. you know like in the first place I don't think for a moment that Macbeth did it I looked at her blankly did what I asked. I don't think for a moment that he killed the king, she said. I don't think that Macbeth woman was mixed up in it either. You suspect them the most, of course, but those are the ones that are never guilty, or shouldn't be, anyway. I'm afraid I began that I... Don't you see, said the American lady? It would spoil everything if you could figure it out right away who did it. Shakespeare was far too smart for that. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I think that that, um, you know, that's Thurber sort of poking fun at this sort of form that goes on top and sort of... Uh, and and Chandler's critique of, of of this is that it sort of smothers psychological realism, right? Well, yeah, his critique is that they don't know what they're talking about, for one, right? <laughs> that they they get the details wrong, that they don't know the worlds they're describing, the British, that is, right? Yeah. So that it lacks a kind of uh, descriptive realism in the first place, and then. And then also lacks that psychological realism. Yeah, that there's a sort of, you know, a, a kind of great um, counterpoint to this. You, you know, you have these like complex ways in which somebody was killed, um, you know, using some sort of bizarre implement. And he points out that, you know, it's, it's for, for the police, the folks who tried to get really cute with how they were doing a murder are the easiest ones to catch, right? Um, and if you compare that to something like um, the murder in... Uh, Donna Tartt's first book, right? The um, uh, the, the secret, secret history. history, right? Like the the clever aspect of how they do the murder in that book is that it's done in a sort of very natural way, relying on chance, um, in a way that would be sort of hard to plan uh, with any kind of clockwork precision, and that's what makes it impossible to catch them. Um, you know, whereas the kind of classic English murder mystery set in, you know, a manner, um, you know, where you know who, you know, all the, all the, all the possible murderers and, and, and it's just this kind of elaborate plot where, you know, first you suspect one person, then another, then another. 
uh, is there's a certain pleasure to it, but he doesn't take it seriously, right? There's a great yeah. in um, uh, <laughs> Chandler had written a uh, a dedication to the editor of Black Mask, which had published uh, sort of Dashiell Hammett and other folks. Black Mask being the great uh, American crime magazine, right? Uh, and he his his dedication wrote for Joseph Thompson Shaw with affection and respect. Uh, this is the editor. And in memory of the time when we were trying to get murder away from the upper classes, the weekend house party in the vicar's rose garden, and back to the people who are really good at it. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, he, you know, he, he doesn't like this sort of cleverness, right? Um, and he also thinks that it's it's very hard to turn this thing into art because he thinks you need to have realism, right? And at a certain point, he's like, the person who's able of constructing this elaborate plot <laughs> is not going to have the skill, uh, you know, to create vibrant characters, right? Um, you know, they're they're sort of the kind of rigorous, rational mind. Uh, that, 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 that can construct this sort of elaborate clockwork construction is not the sort who's going to give a spark of life in the, in, you know, in the in individuals uh, that he's writing about. Right. Right. I mean, the, the, the funny thing is that, um, you know, I, look, it, it's like, the, it depends on what you mean by that. I, what he's saying is that, not that the kind of writer who's capable of uh, minute description can't come up with compelling living characters, but that the kind of writer who's invested in, I think what you call the, the Rube Goldberg plot device film, yeah. tends to, to not be a writer who's going to create breathing um, you know, characters with blood pumping through them. And that's certainly true, but the thing that uh, me, I was about to say the thing that McDonald develops and McDonald develops it as well, but Chandler does first. The thing that Chandler develops in response to that is not a stripped down, pared down, minimalist psychological realism, right? Which is maybe what you would expect from that critique. So if you're reading The Simpler to Murder and you're listening to you're listening to Chandler rail against the kind of finery of the plot devices in these English novels. Maybe you're expecting that in his very distinctly, not just American, but very California novels, um, you might expect that they would be all kind of brute psychological realism or, you know, brooding characters of the, the Jim Thompson type. But that's not the case. And in fact, you know, he's got some he's got some novels with fairly ornate plotting as well. It's just that the plotting doesn't add up to anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very famous case where Richard and uh, Richard Hawks, Howard Hawks, the Hollywood director, is directing an adaptation of a classic Chandler novel, The Big Sleep, which was, I think, adapted a total of 
is it three times, um, including the incredible version with Elliot Gould and Arnold Schwarzenegger in the 70s, uh, which is this like kind of shaggy dog version directed by, I think Robert Altman directed it. It's brilliant. But uh, the original adaptation in 45, Howard Hawks, there's this famous exchange that was once thought to be apocryphal, but was later actually proved to be real based on Chandler's own letters in which Hawks writes a letter to Chandler saying, hey, listen, Humphrey Bogart and I were discussing this. Bogart was in the in the movie. We were discussing this point and we need to know who killed the chauffeur, right? Which is like the chauffeur dies. And Chandler's response, I'm paraphrasing here, was damn if I know. No. <laughs> so it's not as if he was responding or it's not as if he took this critique and developed a minimalist style. What he developed was a style rich in detail in its own way, very rich in descriptive, yeah. uh, California-specific scenery and characters in its own way, but in which the point was not to do a calculation that added up to the answer to the story. It's not a puzzle in that way. You know, it's a mystery, yeah. actually, right? Like, whereas the mystery writers were writing puzzles, Chandler's writing actual mysteries, and the mystery is why the hell these people do the things they do. Yeah, yeah. There's some... Um, uh... Uh, McDonald wrote uh, Chandler's novels focus in on his hero's sensibility and could almost be described as novels of sensibility. Their constant theme is big city loneliness and the wry pain of a sensitive man coping with the roughest elements of a corrupt society. And then, of course, he describes there's, there's the Chandler prose, uh, which is so much a part of it, which he describes as a highly charged blend of laconic wit and imagistic poetry set to breakneck rhythms. Um, yeah, this is one of the things that, speaking of the, the prose, and it's it really doesn't come out in this at all, in the, in the essay, The Simple Art of Murder, but it's worth it to set up a kind of general typology of crime writing and genre writing in American fiction, because not only is this what Chandler is addressing, but it's very important. I, you know, I think, Phil, I'd be interested to hear what you think in terms of the development of the American novel, mm -hmm. the 20th century and the 21st century, one of the only real pure inventions of American fiction in the 20th century, and, and actually at all, there's not that many American centuries to choose from. One of the only true inventions of American fiction is this particular kind of crime novel and detective novel distinct from the English mystery, distinct from the procedural. The detective novel clearly um, with Dashiell Hammett and, and Raymond Chandler as the archetypal writers, but then also there are offshoots of that. And, 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 and to say offshoot actually suggests that the detective novel came first, which is not quite true, but without getting into all the minutia of it, basically the pulp crime novel is related to, but distinct from the detective novel, which is related to, but distinct from the noir, right? So you have the hard boiled pulp novel, which is yeah. black mask is dealing with, you know, Mickey Spillane is the, the kind of 
yeah. classic writer. Mm-hmm. Then you have the detective Dash- novel. Dashiell Hammett, Sam Spade, Hammett no. does both. Right. Right. So Hammett is both doing pulp, but then Hammett is the one who invents the American detective novel, really. Yeah. And Chandler is taking Hammett's mantle. Mcdonald is then coming later and attempting to take Chandler's mantle, but that's Dorothy not Parker the same. once described Hammett as as American as a sawed off shotgun. Yeah, and and that's fantastic, um, and that's exactly right. But then there's also you know who's also a, a purely American writer, not least of all because he fled to France is Chester Himes. But the the uh, Grave de Gred and Coffin Jones. Am I getting those names wrong? Oh my god, it's been a while. Um, the the yeah grave digger Ed and coffin jones anyway chester himes is the great harlem novelist who was a jewel thief and then wrote this series of novels about these two sort of crooked sort of uh, actually crooked but not bad harlem cops um and then some other more literary novels that didn't get the same acclaim they're not detective novels in the same way though they're part of the same world they're crime novels and then there are people like uh, David Goodis, uh, who wrote uh, the novel that uh, Truffaut's film Shoot the Piano Player is based on, where it's more like, and, and Thompson, I would say, where it's more like kind of psycho crime stuff. Anyway, the point of all of this is to say that this is a very distinctively American idiom, right? And the criminal characters that they're describing are distinctly American insofar as, one, they're all urban, you know, and they are characters of the American city. They're not characters of the European city. Yeah. And they and they're, you know, in in their various regional um, dialects, distinctive, but they belong to this kind of la- larger, absolutely American literary tradition. That to bring this back to the original point, does invent, you know, I think an original idiom an original American literary idiom that you can't say that about too many other, uh, too many other schools of American writing. Um, you know, there are great writers. Melville is a great writer, but you know, Melville is a, a sui genre, sui, sui generis, however you pronounce that. Um, you know, it's, there's not a school. Melville doesn't develop an idiom that anyone else works in, right? But the crime writing is its own kind of idiom, you know, the kind of both the like clipped, poetic, yeah. lyrical, but hard-boiled, um, like searching and, and cynical at the same time, but aware of its own cynicism. Anyway, I think that... Uh, kind of wounded romanticism, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. In urban room, you know, very specifically, if you think of the original, I've been thinking a lot about romanticism lately, the 18th, 19th century European romanticism, which is, especially at its origins, you know, associated with pastoral, you know, it's it's a, either against nature or in love with nature, but very <laughs> much committed to nature in the natural world. This is a, a wounded romanticism and an urban romanticism. Yeah. Yeah. And so he outlines his, you know, his problems with what came before. Right. And he thinks that they don't, you know, 
they don't they don't rise to to great literary achievement because they're not realistic, right? And they don't actually take take murder and the reason that people do it and and how people would actually respond to it, how detectives would actually respond to it seriously. Um, he gives a kind of, you know, he says he's not going to do a defense, but there are these sort of sort of defenses that he gives, right? So like Dorothy Sayers wrote in the first Omnibus of Crime, you know, that the detective story can't attain the loftiest level of literary achievement, right? Because it's a literature of escape. Uh, and he says, I do not know what the loftiest level of literary achievement is. Neither did Aeschylus or Shakespeare, neither does Miss Sayers. Other things being equal, which they never are, a more powerful theme will provoke a more powerful performance. Yet some very dull books have been written about God and some very fine ones about how to make a living and stay fairly honest. And then later he writes, I hold no particular brief for the detective's story as the ideal escape. I merely say that all reading for pleasure is escape, whether it be Greek, mathematics, astronomy, Benedetto Croce, or the diary of the forgotten man. To say otherwise is to be an intellectual snob and a juvenile at the art of living. Yeah, it's a great line. It's so good. <laughs> a juvenile at the art of living is um, is is a, just a brilliant insult. Yeah. You know. So then he he goes in <clears throat> after laying out his problems with what came before. He starts talking about Hammett, right? And you know he says you know Hammett was one of a bunch of people, but he was the ace performer. He's the one who sort of brought the detective novel to its highest level, right? Hammett took murder out of the Venetian vase and dropped it into the alley. It doesn't have to stay there forever, but it was a good idea to begin by getting as far as possible from Emily Post's idea of how a well-bred debutante gnaws a chicken wing. <laughs> um, so the things that Hammett did are not just that, you know, he gave murder back to the kind of people that commit it for reasons, not just to provide a corpse. <laughs> And with the right. means at hand, not with hand-wrought dueling pistols, curare, and tropical fish. <laughs> he put these people down on paper as they are. He made them... I mean, the, the thing about this is that you just want to quote from it constantly. But he also gives it in the speech of common men. All language begins with speech and the speech of common men at that. But when it develops to the point of becoming a literary medium, it only looks like speech, right? Um, uh and Hammett's style, which does not belong to Hammett or to anybody, but is the American language, and not even exclusively that anymore, can say things he did not know how to say or feel the need of saying, right? Um, and so there's a sort of, it's not just for Chandler that, that, uh, that Hammett is writing more realistic murder stories, right? Uh, it's not that he's just taken the Venetian vase and dropped it into the alley, but that he's done it in a, in a new idiom, Right. It's not really a new idiom. It's it's it's, you know, sort of borrowing from American speech, but. No, it is a new idiom. Yeah. It's, a, it's a literary idiom. Right. So it is a new idiom because it's it is purifying American speech in a, um, you know, Chandler would probably object to that characterization, but it, it's not merely capturing it or, or merely recording it, especially, you know, the thing is that when you get into these novels, this is true of both Hammett and Chandler, they're full of similes, right? So they're not unliterary. Right. You know, they're they're unpretentious at times, not always, but often deliberately unpretentious. And they're um, 
off they're particularly unadorned in the dialogue you know this is one of the things that's great about them is the, the dialogue is fantastic yeah not least of all because they just have good ears they're just listening yeah. to what people actually speak so you know somebody brought up bukowski the other day i can't remember who it was but somebody was saying that you know bukowski has kind of gotten a bad rap of the ears and it's funny i now find myself in a position of the position of defending Bukowski a bit after having, um, after having been a harsh critic in, in my college years when a lot of my friends were really in love with him, and I was like, ah, you know, it's this is not, this is not for me. Though I always gave cre- uh, Bukowski credit for introducing me to John Fonte, who I was uh, a writer I loved and still love. But the thing about Bukowski, too, is that he had a great ear for dialogue. It's a different kind of uh, American who he was listening to and who he was recording. Um, a different kind of sort of destitute at the end of their rope American. But it's good in part just because it smartly captures the way a certain kind of person speaks who hadn't been heard from before in literature. And I think some of that's true of the detective novels as well. But yeah. You know, it's funny too, because even at this early stage, he's very conscious of how, how that style can be abused, right? You know, he says the realistic style is easy to abuse from haste, from lack of awareness, from inability to bridge the chasm that lies between what a writer would like to be able to say and what he actually knows how to say. It is easy to fake. Brutality is not strength. Flipness is not wit. Edge of the chair writing can be as boring as flat writing. Dalliance with promiscuous blondes can be very dull stuffed when described by goaty young men with no other purpose in mind than to describe dalliance with promiscuous blondes. Uh, There has been so much of this sort of thing that if a character in a detective story says, yeah, the author is automatically a Hammett imitator. Um, And I think that, you know, the hard-boiled style, I mean, you know, uh, is has permeated so much into American culture. I mean, you know, one of the great variants of this is um, uh, Frank, um, oh God, uh, Sin City. Uh, Frank Miller. Frank Miller, right? Where it's like, he's, you know, he's, he's going sort of, it's not just that he's pushing it too far. He's pushing it so far beyond anything that it becomes its own sort of like, extremely stylized form. Um, yeah, I love, I love that stuff. I, well, no, I mean, too. it's... I couldn't it's, get enough of it. Yeah, no, it's delightful. Where it's bad is where it's pushed too hard and um, and it's sort of... It's that kind of like, you know, the brutality is not strength, flipness is not wit, like this sort of deliberately brutal style that seems to be overplaying its hand, Right. Um, yeah, I learned that later <laughs> that that wasn't good, but <laughs> I can't say that I didn't enjoy that. At I, well, it's, it's, it's it's extremely enjoyable. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't last though. You know, it's yeah. not uh, it's not just that you learn to like look down on it and grow too wise for it or something. It's it doesn't actually hold up. It's um, there's a kind of visceral response and a voyeuristic response that it provokes. That's just not very durable. Yeah. But, you know, I was thinking of uh, the final part 
of this asset. Well, so this so, is this is crucial. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah go. Oh, you, yeah. You, no. After you. Okay. Well, I was going to say the you just set up the kind of um, the relationship to Hammett, and you you know you set up Chandler's relationship to Hammett, what Hammett's doing. But in the end, when it comes back to for Chandler, and this is from uh, one of the the final paragraphs, uh, Chandler writes, in everything that can be called art, there is a quality of redemption. It may be pure tragedy, if it is high tragedy, and it may be pity and irony, and it may be the raucous laughter of the strong man. But down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. The detective in this kind of story must be such a man. He is the hero. He is everything. He must be a complete man, a common man, and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor, by instinct, by inevitability, without thought of it, and certainly without saying it. Now, I find that to be a remarkable thing um, for Chandler to have written, and I I think... um, a brave thing to have written. I think it's absolutely true. I think that the detective novel requires it, but it's very easy to imagine writers who are trying to uh, make themselves the uh, kind of American existentialists and who are trying to earn their keep in the literary world to have disavowed that kind of frank moral talk, you know, or a, a frank discussion of uh, man of honor without qualifying it with a modernist or ironical uh, <laughs> well you know, you know i I, I feel like uh you know like if uh if victoria were here from you know who did the walcott episode with us mm. she'd be going this is so male <laughs> which part of it though i mean this whole thing and and if you Continue which, on, which you know, he must be the best, best man in his world and a good enough man yeah. for any world. I do not yeah. care about his private life. He's neither a eunuch nor a satyr. I think he might seduce a duchess and I'm quite sure he would not spoil a virgin if he's a well, man or not. Right. I, I think it is very male. But <laughs> yeah. My, my observation of maleness is that it's not going anywhere. And so the best <laughs> we can hope for is to try and ennoble it, you know? And so like the, the, the critique of maleness for being maleness sort of misses the point that we're <laughs> stuck with it. And um, not to say, I'm not, I don't mean to caricature um, Victoria's position, but yeah, of course there's a, a, it's not macho, actually. I don't want to say there's a macho quality. That's not macho. That's um, honorable, which is uh, so, a, so a much better quality than macho is. He sets a world where, um, you know, the realist in murder writes of a world in which gangsters can rule nations and almost rule cities, in which hotels and apartment houses and celebrated restaurants are owned by men who made their money out of brothels, and in which a screen star can be the finger man for a mob and the nice man down the hall is the boss of the numbers racket, a world where a judge with a cellar full of bootleg liquor can send a man to jail for having a pint in his pocket, where the mayor of your town may have you may have condoned murder as an instrument of money making, where no man can walk down a dark street in safety because law and order are things we talk about, what refrain from practicing, and so on. Right? He's he's talking about sort of this corrupt world, and um, that you need to describe, 
and then you send down these mean streets, you know, your hero, right? And it's so. I mean, this is this is important the for aesthetic that, reasons, also. Right. So this is precisely the area that um, McDonald criticized, right? He thought that this was an area where Chandler went wrong, and he accuses Chandler of having a kind of um, angry puritanical morality, right? Uh, the goats are usually separated from the sheep by sexual promiscuity or perversion in his early books, he says. And he says, while there may be a quality of redemption in a good novel, it belongs to the whole work and is not the private property of one of the characters. No hero of serious fiction could act within a moral straitjacket requiring him to be consistently virtuous and unafraid. Sam Spade was submerged and struggling in his tragic life. The detective as redeemer is a backward step in the direction of sentimental romance and an oversimplified world of good guys and bad guys. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I think that <laughs> McDonald's grasp of that is why he's ultimately a better, well, part of why he's ultimately a better writer than Chandler is. And for me, I certainly a richer writer, you know, but, but, you know, McDonald doesn't abandon the man of honor at the center of the novel without whom mm-hmm. the, the novel becomes impossible what he's saying, and he, you know, again, he's right, is he abandons the idea that that man of honor is the redeemer, that yeah. there's some kind of uh, central, almost, you know, sacrificial or, or, um, you know, in its own way, Christ-like quality yeah. to mm-hmm. the, the man who's absorbing the sin of others. But, but he doesn't give up on that character and the the kind of typology I was setting up before, where you have you know your noirs and your hard boiled pulp novels and your crime novels, I like stuff from all of those. You yeah. know, I'm not setting the detective novel above them. I think Himes is a brilliant writer, and he's doing something different. I think David Goodis is a brilliant writer. I, you know, I think James Elroy is a brilliant writer, and there's none of this in James Elroy. You know, James Elroy is just like images flying you know it's mm-hmm. just like a movie playing in your mind it's incredible but you know always not trying to do any of this neither is donald wesley you know there are plenty of people who do great stuff but this is a kind of american romance novel you know it's a and it's impossible without the detective who has to be simultaneously beaten down not pure you know, in his own way, corrupted in some way. Um, he has to have his own past. Um, and yet, at the uh, same... So you want him corrupted, right? So you're actually adding no, something No, I'm, I'm not saying he has to be corrupted. Excuse me, I'm not saying I want him to be... He has to be corrupted. He always is. Yeah. Sam Spade is corrupt. By corrupted, I don't mean irredeemably corrupted. I mean, there's always some element in the past, fired from the police department, cheats where he can get away with it. All of these, every yeah. one of these guys does this. You know, Sam Spade, Hammett's uh, detective does it. Philip Marlowe does it. Lou Archer does it. None of them are Boy Scouts. Right. But none of them are like Jim Thompson psychopaths either. You know, they are, 
listen, the, the, the sobriquet that I have borrowed on more than one occasion um, for this fine podcast that we do together, The Slumming Angel, was a name given to Raymond Chandler. Chandler yeah. was the Slumming Angel. And, you know, it's a, a fine appellation. Um, who, 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 who said that of him? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. Should look at it's the kind of thing I should have looked up before we did this, but I I know Ed McDonald said there's pathos in the idea that a man who can write like a fallen angel should be a mere private eye. Oh man, maybe it comes from McDonald. I think he's referencing that slumming angel line. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to look it up, but it it gives the novels um, it gives them a center and a voice, and it also provides them with the basis for a kind of a particular kind of American urban social critique Mm -hmm. that would have been difficult to pull off otherwise. So like that weariness does not make them nihilistic. The the weariness attached to the man of some honor, you know, some reasonable degree of honor, not a man of pure virtue, but a man of a reasonable degree of honor, at the very least a man of a reasonable degree of honesty and discernment and with a code of his own, which is the whole point, right? Like it's not society's code. They're not Boy Scouts. They're not blind rule followers, but they have a code and the famous uh, masculine formulation. And that makes it possible as, um, as McDonald does frequently in the novel we're about to talk about to engage in real um, subtle and yet at the same time, um, harsh critique of American society. Why is this so dominant in American, I mean, especially American film, right? I mean, the Chandler's prescription for the hero of the detective novel is could describe so many leading men in movies over the next century. Because it's a, a unbelievably American. Because it's a, you know, it's the the man in his lonesome way who is in touch with uh, a higher principle, which of course is like his personal relationship to God on some level, right? Well, you know, it's not that relationship to God is not explicit in detective novels, but it's the idea of a man born outside of hereditary caste, born outside of village and and feudal society and and European strictures, who is, you know, in his own way, capable of deducing the truth of the world and who possesses his own kind of, uh, possesses his own moral morality and a morality that's true and connected in some way to his understanding of a truth that is, um, that is a, it, like his own, that he arrived at, right? That was not handed to him. I mean, it's just very American. Uh, against this, one is forced to admire the stark, enduring figure of Deerslayer. He is neither spiritual nor sensual. He is a moralizer but he always tries to moralize from actual experience, not from theory. He says, hurt nothing unless you're forced to. 
Yet he gets his deepest thrill of gratification, perhaps, when he puts a bullet through the heart of a beautiful buck as it stoops to drink at the lake, or when he brings down the invisible bird, or when he brings the invisible bird fluttering down in death out of the high blue. Hurt nothing unless you're forced to, and yet he lives by death by killing the wild things of the air and earth. It's not good enough, but you have, but you have there the myth of the essential white America. All the other stuff, the love, the democracy, the floundering into lust, is a sort of byplay. The essential American soul is hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer. It is never yet melted. D.H. Uh, Lawrence, studies on classic American literature. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's Lawrence's more cynical take on this this figure, which he sees obviously in from the yeah. birthplace of American literature. I mean, there's certainly something to that. I mean, he's not wrong exactly, but uh, <laughs> might be missing something. Um, <laughs> but, but listen, that's a good opportunity to transition. To, uh, yeah, to transition to Black Money. I, I would recommend people check out the. There's a few different. Uh, there's a book going under the title Simple Art of Murder, and then there's actually a later iteration of the essay. Look up the original. 1955 version. I believe it ran at the Atlantic, uh, but it's easy enough to find. Yeah, you can find it we'll, online. We'll probably be able to post a PDF or something, but it's worth reading. It's like Phil is saying, it's, you know, it's fun and mean and um, also insightful. So, Black Money. So why did you start reading McDonald this year? What was it that brought that about? I'm... Um trying to educate myself on detective and murder mysteries because I'm going to try and write one. But why McDonald now? What was the... Because uh, um, you, you, you told me he's great. Yeah. Um, right. But I also got into a Twitter exchange with um, uh, someone about McDonald and that sparked me to, to find... I've been meaning to read him for a while. Yeah, um, he is great. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, now, this book, Jake... Yes. has one Jewish character and one practicing Roman Catholic character. Right. right. The, the Jewish character is a policeman with an enveloping Jewish force. Right. right. Whereas the practicing, practicing Roman Catholic is easily the most pathetic character in the book. He gets his camera smashed. He gets cheated on. He gets beat up. He gets thrown in the trunk of his own car, which is then stolen by winos who crash it. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what lessons we can draw from this. What do you think? What are, seems like there must be some kind of takeaway or message. So the truth about Ross McDonald, who I love um, and who I think is out of that kind of triumvirate of Hammett, Chandler, McDonald, I think that McDonald is um, – Maybe not. He's certainly not the most uh, innovative of the three of them in the sense of how much he brought to the genre that wasn't there before. But he's the deepest of the three of them. Mm. Um, you know, it's what Chandler says about Hammett, that there are things that could be done with Hammett's language that maybe Hammett wasn't even fully aware of at the time or didn't have the time to do. I think in that idiom, McDonald takes it the furthest. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also just think it's the, to me, in terms of the quality of escape that Chandler's right to emphasize, it's the deepest escape. All that being said, 
in his best novels, um, they're basically, he wrote the same novel about 20 times. <laughs> um, you know, there are variations. There's the, the plots vary. Um, there are even a few he wrote without the Lou Archer detective character. But they're very, he had a, a real um, type that he worked and a kind of a plot structure and a mood that he worked. And he worked it brilliantly. But there are even, my brother and I, Harry and I used to have fun finding like lines that he would repeat that would show up and like, and we were never sure was this, was he lazy? And he was thinking like this guy's eyes look like raisins set in a oatmeal or, uh, you know, or, and, and he just wanted to repeat a phrase he'd used before because he was, or did he actually forget which you can imagine happening, right? Like if you write 20 novels, you might think that you'd come up with a description, not realizing that you'd used it before. But there are a handful of those that recur. Um, Black uh, in, Moody, in, I in, think. Uh, <laughs> in Missionaries? Yeah. In early draft, I used, no, I edited this out, but I used literally the exact same description to describe a character's face. Raisin uh, said note meal. No, 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 not raisin said note, but like my okay, own, yeah. a description of my own. Uh, right, right. And then I realized I, t- I described two different characters that way because I just liked liked the, the description. Of course. Yeah. So imagine, you know, years apart, right? It's entirely possible, but he certainly repeated himself. All that being said, I think Black Money is the best of them. Um, there are a few others that I would put up there with it, but certainly it's my favorite. Um and it's not long. I'd highly, highly recommend it to people. It's a hell of a lot of fun to read and um, a kind of like uh, a kind of brilliant little um, Gatsby in its own way. You know, yeah. it's like mm-hmm. McDonald's hard boiled Gatsby, basically. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the biggest thing that I noticed sort of differentiating him from some of the other writers that we talked about, right, is... You know, I'll read a little segment. There's a bit where a woman is trying to get him, get Lou Archer on on her side, and uh, and he's turns her down. Money isn't the only thing in life. That's what I used to think until this. What are you, a do-gooder or something? I wouldn't say so. I'm working at not being a do-batter. She gave me a puzzled look. I don't get you, Archer. What's your angle? I like people, and I try to be of some service. And that, ad- and that adds up to a life? It makes life possible, anyway. Try it sometime. And that line, I like people, and I try to be of some service, the biggest thing that really differentiates this from the other writers is when I think about those books of the other writers, I think about the detective first. And in Black Money, I think about the other characters. Like, yeah, yeah, that's a good distinction. He's actually interested in a major way in the other characters. He's not, you know, and you can see it in that Chandler. Chandler really is 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 so invested in the detective hero, right? And all that the detective as redeemer can represent, and like. Lou Archer's going through the world, which is not uniformly corrupt. It's just some people are better than others, right? Um, uh, 
you know, surfaces are not what they, not what they seem. You want to give a quick description of the plot here? Yeah. Uh, so he gets hired by a, like the son of a wealthy guy in this rich California town. And this kid who's fat, and you get the sense that Ross McDonald really is contemptuous of fat people in the descriptions. Oh He's fat, and I think uh, McDonald says he looks like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the rhino line a bit off but it's something like he looks like wealth a few generations removed oh oh yeah, yeah. that's a well some of the descriptions are just fantastic yeah, yeah. Um, he looked like money about three generations removed from its source right, right. ouch <laughs> right and this kid he and this by the way is another difference from the um, sort of English murder mystery plot instead of there's a murder and then the entire novel is about what had happened to cause the murder. Crime and, and, and the sort of crime and mystery is developing alongside the investigation of, of Lou Archer. He's, uh, this kid, his fiance, Virginia Fablon, who's sort of also a child of wealth, though the family has sort of run through it, is marrying this guy, Martel, who showed up in this wealthy town, flashing a lot of money around with this sort of dubious story about being like a French political exile on the outs with de Gaulle. And he doesn't trust, he doesn't trust it. He's, he's worried for Virginia, but he also has a sort of proprietary interest in her. And he hires Lou Archer to just, you know, basically figure out what's going on with Martel in the hopes of, of busting up this sort of impending ma marriage. Right. With his ex-fiance. Right. Who's preparing and, to marry Martel, who we're told very early on might not even be white. Right. Yeah. And there's, there's certain elements of that, uh, that pop up, particularly with a former landlady of his, uh, where sort of California racism pops through. And and one of the things that happens is as you're going through, you get different bits of information about about Martel, but also about the other characters that sort of change how you see them, right? Where your understanding of who they are starts to shift, right? One of the big ones is when, you know, at first you're this seems like a very dubious thing that the the ex fiance is hiring Lou Archer to do. And then you see Martel pull a gun on somebody and, and, and smash, smash the camera of the pathetic Roman Catholic character. Um, and, uh, and over time, you get these pieces of information where you start forming a picture of Martel and the other characters that, that keep shifting. There's a bit that um, uh, when McDonald was talking about his differences from Chandler, he said one of the basic differences between us uh, was in our attitude to plot. Chandler described a good plot as one that made for good scenes, as if the parts were greater than the whole. I see plot as a vehicle of meaning. It should be as complex as contemporary life, but balanced enough to say true things about it. The surprise with which a detective novel concludes should set up tragic vibrations which run backward through the entire structure, which means that the structure must be single and intended. Yeah, I think that that... Um, this novel in particular and his best novels generally do that. 
Uh, that's a very, very good description of what they do and the means by which they do that and the, the form of the plots, the thing, the kind of human architecture that allows that to work is the family, which is what mm-hmm. all of McDonald's best stuff is about. These novels are all about families and they're about the ways that sin is visited, sin, error, um, and and especially the sin of pride and of hubris are um, visited upon um, generations who attempt to transcend them, and uh, and it's about people being uh, determined by and defined by families that they attempt to escape almost inevitably in manners that replicate precisely the element of the family that they were trying to escape. Um, it's also about the, I mean, especially this novel is about the fantasies that people construct around themselves, right? But the fantasies that they construct around themselves in order to escape the realities they were born into. I mean, maybe right. that's so obvious. What, what it did, goes what did you and saying, Francis... but they're not... Um, like they're they're not uh, how would you put it they're not they're they're fantasies that are growing out of people who have very clear uh, who's I'm trying not to say certain things Phil that you know uh, you know there is some mystery contained in the novel right and I, I, don't I feel like we should just talk about it like should we just talk about it yeah. so okay yeah you're probably right okay so Martel is not French. Uh, Francis Martel is not a Frenchman, um, and and his vague description of uh, being Mediterranean is hiding his actual racial identity, which is the thing that he is trying to escape. And it's it's funny because race is something that sort of comes in at the edges of a lot of McDonald's novels, and yet he never really directly addresses even in this novel he doesn't quite directly address it you know there's a bit where you know there's like a a former professor of his who's talking about you know how pedro was a ruined poet um who'd inherited too many problems uh and his country was the trampled crossroads of the world and he himself the essence of it it's my caucasian indian negro uh, he seemed to identify himself with the Black Christ of Nombre de Dios, which is a famous Panamanian religious statue, right? Um, Pedro being Martel. Yeah, 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 which is confusing. Pedro being Martel's real name. Yeah. Um, Marte, Francis Martel being this identity that he's constructed to uh, try to escape being Pedro. Right. And, you know, one of the nice things about this is, so, you know, he's got this kind of Gatsby story where he sort of reinvents himself with the help of some sort of connections to the criminal underworld uh the energy and then you know everything is kind of coming to a head the energy that had conceived the dream and forced it briefly into reality had all run out now um and yet the other characters the wealthy characters right um there's a, there's a way in which sort of the progressive revelations about them expose the kind of fantasies that they're living in themselves. Uh, one of the funny things is Martel talks about reading Descartes every day, right? <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, the, <laughs> I think, therefore I am. Uh, and um, 
and there's a later sort of allusion to Sartre's no exit uh, that's also important in these sort of like um, decontextualized philosophies and whereas uh, Lou Archer's job is to progressively try and accumulate enough detail to be able to situate these folks right in the reality that they're constructing their fantasies on top of right right i love there's a there's a great bit at line and what did you and francis talk about francis is martel what did you and francis talk about jenny poetry and philosophy mostly i had so much to learn from francis never real things right <laughs> it's that never real things um and there's a there's an academic too who's obsessed with the luminous city uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The world of the mind, you know, this world of ideas that you, that you can live in. Um, well, actually, this is another one, uh, Jake. That uh, so there's the pathetic Roman Catholic character, but also you know, uh, one of the villains in this book is um, a college professor, uh, war veteran who's really into literature. So, I mean, you know. <laughs> I, I, and it was picked entirely at random. So I think that um, and, and the professor isn't all bad. I mean, the, the, He's the, Catholic, bad. Character, the Catholic character is worse. I mean, more <laughs> pathetic. He's definitely say. more pathetic. You know, <laughs> the professor is uh, mixed up and, and sort of deluded, but I'm not, not quite as craven. Well, uh, well, when we find out what he's been writing, I think it, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 it, becomes, it descends into... Do you do you live like a god in the adamantine city of your mind, Jacob? I try. You know, it's uh, <laughs> moments. There are moments. Yeah. I think that the thing that make these the thing that makes this work, right? The reason why this collection of kind of lost, um, deluded, uh, you know, at, at times quite pathetic, at other times quite vicious cast of characters the reason why it works in addition to the sort of clarifying and empathetic um but not uh not coddling or um or sparing eye of archer the thing that makes it work is that you do for the central characters i'm talking about like for Ginny, for martel not so much for jameson but you do you do, I, I at least do, I feel what they want, you know, they're not, um, they're not pathetic, right? Yeah. Or, or merely their, their delusions. They're not just being exposed, right? Like, right. you don't find out that Martel is Pedro and think, ah, what a chump, you know, or like, how did he ever think he, you, you admired in some way? Um, you admire at least the audacity of it. And you, understand why right and you and i think it would be fair to say you get what Ginny sees in him right yeah he's not just a a vicious guy or a fraud he does have something to escape it's not fair you know the circumstances were not fair he did get get dealt a raw deal and he's trying to make it work and why the hell shouldn't he you know that's like there's something in that as well, right? The American part of it is also like, why shouldn't he get a chance? Right. What, they get to lie, but he doesn't? Why shouldn't he get to lie? But Archer is saying, yeah, but you're lying to yourself. 
Yeah. You know, you, that's what you can't get away from. That's what's going to get you. The, the other thing that makes it so great is, you know, in order to solve this, like Archer's trying to situate people, right? He's not trying to take them at their word and all the sort of stories that they spin him. He's trying to sort of ground them in the, in the totality of their social environment. So when he talks to, you know, he doesn't just talk to the doctor. He talks to the doctor's wife and, and he finds out about the, the gambler that they knew. And he talks about, you know, he, he finds out about right. Virginia's right. mother. And then he has to talk to the guy, you know, he has to talk to the barman, right? He has to talk to people from every layer of the society. And it's not a simple, like, underneath everything is not always corruption, right? Sometimes it's just different types of human interest, right? Different yeah, types hope. of dreams. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of the first page of your novel, Phil. It reminds me of the opening of your novel, you know, in, in the sense of people being mirrors for the lives of others, reflective surfaces that, you know, collect and reflect other people's lives. Um, and if you think about like when this is coming out, this is, you know, the, the kind of just after the height of the psychological novel, the 20th century psychological right. novel, right? But who, how does Archer piece together this understanding of who a person is? It's not through a penetrating psychoanalysis, though sometimes he does end up talking to shrinks in these books, but it's like he's getting, there's a different piece of, a person belongs to all these different people, the different parts of the person yeah. belong to all these different people that they interact with and to understand who they are, you have to gather those pieces together. And he's not a genius, right? He's not Dupin, he's not... Um... Yeah. Right. Sherlock Holmes, he's just like, he's not judgmental, but he's not not judgmental, right? Um, yeah, he is kind of judgmental. He's just not... Uh, when it comes to murder, right? right but he's not right. like, he's not shocked. Um, you know, he's not shocked by anything. Right. Um, he's just sort of... But he's not amoral. Yeah, he's, he's not, not judgmental, amoral. but he's not amoral. Uh, he understands human weakness. He has a certain degree of sympathy for it. He's just trying to sort of slowly, methodically talk to enough people, figure things out. Um, and he's not self-deluded either. Yeah, this is important. And one of the ways in which he's not self-deluded is that he understands that part of that, I think, sense of one's own limitations is born out in the idea that you have to commit to a practice, right? Like, yeah. so his way of, a, I, I remember, um, speaking of um, hopes and delusions, I, I remember when I was in Iraq, the, there was a kind of debate at the time among the soldiers about these new human teams. Um, I'm trying to remember what they were called at the time. It's like THTs or something like that. Anyway, they were these battalion-level human teams, and they were tended to be like E4s and E5s. So, like, you know, it was not like really seasoned soldiers, but these were the these were the teams that were supposed to do the source contacts with Iraqi army and Iraqi sources and develop intelligence that way. And I remember at the time there was a lot of pushback from like 
you know, from everybody, but especially from, you know, the sort of like squad leader, platoon sergeant left NCO, who was like, you really think that a, uh, you really think that a, some Iraqi source who's been around the block wants to talk to a American corporal who's like just out of basic training in AIT and doesn't know it. You really think that just because they got the, the MOS designator that that means that they can like run sources. The idea being that the job required some degree of extra um, human insight, depth of awareness. And the truth is that both sides were right. And the, like the crusty platoon sergeant squad leader was right in the sense that the 22-year-old corporal just out of AIT was not the right person for that job. Typically did not know what they were doing, especially if they were doing it without a uh, trained, more seasoned NCO there with them to show them how it was done. They absolutely weren't the right person. There is a degree of kind of human experience and awareness of the world and cultural awareness that's necessary to do that job. Where the, you know, line platoon sergeant or squad leader or whomever was wrong was in their assumption that they were qualified to do the job just because they were world weary and been around the block, right? In fact, they would have sucked at the job too. They didn't know what they were doing because that, that human awareness, that experience, that kind of um, lived in like depth of understanding that can only be gained through experience was necessary, but not sufficient. That was only the basis on top of which you still needed a practice that was about the accumulation of relevant material details through which you put together the profile of this person and their motivations. And that's what Archer does. It's also what uh, Phil Marlowe did in the Chandler novels. But that's the way they get at these things. You know, there's a practice. They're not um, they're not relying just on the intensity of their psychological insight yeah. you know there, well, there's it's, a- it's the folks who are <laughs> it's those intensely intellectual characters in this novel who who are the ones building complex fantasies that they then become enclosed inside of right and the detective is sort of just steadily asking basic questions and unraveling those fantasies that are sort of intellectual constructions, right? I mean, and part of it is, is sort of interesting because it's like, okay, the, um, and this idea of like false visions of reality is this kind of constant theme that keeps coming up through the books, right? And, and there are references to like, you know, one of the characters is, is prone to Bovaryism, right? Um, uh, Martel is described as, you know, the ruined poet. Um, you know, there, there are these, uh, it, it's, it's a continual drumbeat, uh, the self-enclosed fantasy, right? That the, that the characters are living in, right? Right. Um, and of course, that sort of construction of ourselves, like, that's what we do, right? Um, and I think that you know, when Marlowe is asked his philosophy, the reason that I, I read that is, you know, I'm interested in people and I try to do good. It's a very, it's a very 
humble self-construction, right? Rather than one of these more sort of elaborate ones. Uh, and that's what keeps him on the level, even though, you know, he's not a perfect character. He's not, he's not, he's not Chandler's hero in the way that Chandler's hero is so dramatic, right? Chandler's hero is such a contrast from the mean streets. And Lou Archer isn't, isn't so differentiated from these people, right? He's, he's got a more of a sh shared humanity with them. He's just has a more sort of steady and humble approach. Yeah. Not a slumming angel, but a, um, but a what? Just a, you know, practical American doing his job. That, that's an unbeatable ending. <laughs> that is, we're cutting it off right there. All right. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>